Welcome to episode number 18 of the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs who tell their story and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hi, I'm Conrad Weaver, your host for the show. We're in season two and looking forward to bringing you more interviews with amazing people doing great things. So have you ever wanted to know what really goes on in Hollywood and like how the movie business works? Well, today's guest will help shed some light on that. Michael Seibel is a screenwriter, film director, and producer who's worked in the business for a long time. He's worked on a number of major films, films like Men of Honor, Hunt for Red October, and many, many others. He's also directed a number of films for the Billy Graham Association. And last summer, I was able to connect with him and record an interview with him from his home in Wisconsin. He tells us the story of his journey in the business of making movies. So stay tuned. You know, I'm really excited about the new season of the podcast. I've got some amazing people on the program in the next few weeks, and I think you'll enjoy every one of them. And I'm always looking for new connections with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs. And so if you know of someone you think would be a good fit for the show, I would love it if you'd make an introduction. Hey, if you enjoy these podcasts and think that more people should listen, give me a review on Apple Podcasts, then share this episode with a friend. You can send it through a text message or an email or through a Facebook post and share it with all your friends. I would be so excited for you to do that. I'm also very excited that the My Story podcast is now also available on Stitcher. If you're listening on the Stitcher app, please give me a shout out, leave a review, let me know that you're tuning in. Thanks for doing that. And now, here's my interview with Michael Seibel. So, Michael, welcome to the My Story podcast. I'm so glad you were able to join me today. Thank you, Conrad. Yeah, so uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what do you do? Well, um, I am, uh, I, I would say, at the midpoint of my career as a film uh, writer, director, and occasional producer. I, I produce when I can't find another producer. Hmm. And uh, uh, I have uh, started off in the business right out of uh, UCLA uh, as a film writer. I was on the set of my first professionally written, produced feature film when I was about 22, I think. And uh, there's an entire story behind that, of course. And then I ran into uh, a couple of guys on a couple of film sets, and they uh, they said, "Hey, we should start a production company because everybody has a production company." <laughs> so we did, and we started doing miniatures and special effects and explosions hmm. for TV shows, and uh, we did. Uh, Let's see, Fall Guy, Airwolf, Dukes of Hazard, and Knight Rider, and Murder She Wrote, and uh, oh, you, I, all of those shows in the eighties uh, needed us and used us, and we were wow, I love we some little, of those shows. Yeah, I remember Airwolf especially. That was oh, yeah. one of my favorites. Well, I worked on from the pilot to a couple of the episodes, even when they went up to Canada for the fourth season, and then um, that 
sort of lend itself to feature film work. And by then my company had reformed, uh, got rid of some bad blood or the bad blood left us on its own accord, you might say, <laughs> and uh, which, which was great. And so my partners and I then started sharing in the profits. So then we experienced the fruits of Hollywood and um, worked on parts of almost, oh gosh, 40 to 50 feature films. Uh, probably the most fun ones uh, were Hot Shots and Hot Shots Part Do, but we did Speed, Broken Arrow, Hunt for Red October, uh, a number of Disney films, a lot of 20th Century Fox films, X-Men. Uh, so we we really were working quite a bit. In fact, one year we had 20, oh no, excuse me, I'm, I'm missing a decimal point, 200 days of filming. Wow. With, and you add in prep days and holidays, we worked every day. And including Easter Sunday morning, I was shooting motocross, believe it or not. But um, so I always looked at that as kind of a journeyman job that wasn't really my mm -hmm. aim. But we sure put a lot of money in the bank and I was able to buy a house and uh, right under the H in the mm -hmm. Hollywood sign. And then uh, got more into feature work and started working on some independent features where I was the writer or director. And um, then I ran into friends uh, or, or people who would become friends in some of the faith-based filmmaking uh, I did. I wrote or directed or produced a combination of two, usually, uh, a number of Billy Graham movies in the 90s, 1990s. And I was also doing the studio work still because you can't make any money, or at least I don't think you can make any money uh, off of faith-based films. So then just the last 10 or 12 years, I've been directing mainline feature films for the theaters. Uh, probably my most recognizable film is called The Ultimate Gift. Uh, and uh, I had a lot to do with that film, I, I would say, more than any other film. And I, uh, at, to date, I should say, and then that was in the 2005, I think, time slot. And I'd done a film in India the year before with Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole and John Reese davies called One Night with a King. But when I did The Ultimate Gift, I was able to really work with the producers for casting and get really a lot of my casting uh, uh, requests fulfilled, including James Garner. And it was turns out to be uh, Mr. Garner's last film. And um, uh, mm, let's see, wow. uh, gosh, a number of great other actors. Brian Dennehy, who I always had on my bucket list to work with, was in that film. And uh, so, yeah, it, it was really uh, a film that that it did horribly in the box office, but it was a phenomenal success in DVD and aftermarket. And it kind of launched the Hallmark Channel mm -hmm. and their movie, uh, their Christmas movie craze, because it was just clean enough <laughs> and uh, not not edgy enough to uh, satisfy their audience. And Boy, their their whole thing has taken off with the Christmas movies. Yeah, I mean, I saw they were releasing like I don't know thirty or forty titles this year, and I was like, "Wow, that's that's crazy." Well, the first couple of years, Hallmark Channel showed the ultimate gift, like either you know 
um, back to back <laughs> for for two <laughs> weeks, or they showed it. It was their feature film, and they showed other films uh, every other like a checkerboard type pattern. But we were on three, four times a day, and wow, uh, it really did. Uh, uh, build that channel and their recognition. And of course, I think they felt like they hit Pater with the theme of Christmas. Mm -hmm. So over the years, what have you seen? What, what's some of the biggest changes you've seen in Hollywood or in the movie business? Well, um, I've kind of tracked the business itself from the very beginning, from the Lumiere brothers, the Pathé uh, brothers, uh, all of the uh, late 1800 French filmmakers who were experimenting with just taking a picture, a movie of a chimney falling or a train pulling into a station, uh, a kid eating spaghetti, uh, that type of thing. And then into the silent era. And of course, uh, in America with Cecil B. DeMille and uh, others, and you know, obviously D.W. Griffith, uh, the Gishes, uh, and Silence, and obviously Chaplin um, and uh, Keaton and, um, and, and, and then obviously into uh, the late the, the late twenties and the early thirties where the sound started. And then the movies always were trying to improve with color and then widescreen, better sound, and finally evolving into, you know, better seating at the theaters. But mm -hmm. the uh, uh, biggest, one of the biggest revolutions ever was, uh, was being able to see, your films in a secondary market. I mean, you could see a movie at a theater, mm -hmm. then you could see it on a double bill uh, in a in a discount theater, but ultimately, or second run theater. And uh, but ultimately, um, by 1981, video, uh, either VHS or Betamax or Beta, I guess Beta Camp, uh, that that had equaled box office earnings in as early as 1981. So that was the beginning of what I think is where we are now, where, uh, there's, there are more markets than just the theater. And as you, right. as, as the cost of making movies escalate, uh, the audience seems to decline. And, um, fortunately we have still a number of theaters in the U S and it's still a, a viewing habit, but it's nothing like in the 1930s and forties when, people went like once a week or twice a month. Right. And right. so now you've got a million. It was a social gathering place, right? It was a place where you went with your friends and family to get out on the town, right? It's where I went with my friends to find girls and make out in the balcony. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, so we, um, uh, the town I grew up in, Wausau, Wisconsin, does not have a movie theater today. I mean, mm. there's one in the outer, uh, you know, what you'd call a, I don't know, a suburb or whatever, but, uh, it, mm -hmm. it, it's, uh, so now, now my kids are upstairs, not this minute. I hope, I think they're probably still asleep because it's summer <laughs> and they have work later jobs, but they're watching everything on their, their MacBook pros, their iPads, mm -hmm. and even their iPhones and mm -hmm. streaming is King. Uh, the DVD is, if it's not dead already, it will be. Now I still have an audience for my latest film on DVD and, but we're not taking up any shelf space. So right. there's, although we're at walmart.com, target.com, amazon.com, of course, mm -hmm. there's not a hard copy of my film on a shelf anywhere. And that, right. that would be Wraith, uh, the last movie I, I did. 
Yeah. Do you think that has that whole transition from, you know, the community gathering in the theater, watching something together in a dark room to being, uh, being alone in your room or with your family has really maybe changed the, the theater experience or the movie experience in some way that is, that, that is a negative? Well, I mean, I was just reading this, oh gosh, I'd say it was a, a blog of sorts or an, or an article online um, where they brought together a lot of thinkers, including J.J. Abrams and other people. And now when you're doing a shot, you know, um, well, this is just addressing one aspect of your question. When they look at a shot now on a monitor and they're filming, they're going, will people be able to see that on their iPhone? And so, mm-hmm. so there's now a consideration. I don't know if you're going to get the big wide, you know, um, D, uh, you know, Lawrence of Arabia type shots anymore mm-hmm. um, with, with these, you know, with, with the modern audience. That's one thing. Plus mm-hmm. what, what I'm sort of discovering is very possibly, although you're being robbed of a communal experience and certainly there's nothing like a full theater for watching horror. Now you can argue that in my home theater, me watching a horror film on my own is more scary, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, at the same time, there's nothing like a communal scream or a shriek or a gasp, and um, mm-hmm. you know it's just uh, I, I believe it has changed the viewing experience, uh, mm-hmm. and also they're on a different level. And I don't know if they've fixed this or not, but you know when you're when you saw a film projected, you were in a theater. And half the time was dark because of, mm-hmm. you know, image retention and flashing on the screen 24 times a second. Uh, mm-hmm. But you were still in the dark, but your eyes got used to that and your brain got used to that. And you filled in the blanks and uh, with retention and all that. Well, now with video streaming, it's just a constant beam of light into your brain. Mm. So I think people are right. even going to have a different physiological response to material. That's interesting. And uh, unless they built mm. in, you know, a, some sort of a pulse or whatever. And now these new TVs that you buy at like Costco and all that, the Vizios and everything, you have mm. to go in and program out that streaming feature that, uh, what do they call it? It's dampening or whatever. It's, it's meant for sports but it's, it mm-hmm. makes all movies look like bad wedding videos. And um, <laughs> so you need to you need to deprogram your brand new TV to even get remotely a cinematic experience. So there's a number of different levels of change watching a smaller screen with a constant beam of light and alone versus a flickering image in a theater with a with a with a crowd. Mm-hmm. I know here locally there are this one company bought up a, an old theater and they're transforming it into kind of a dinner place where you can get a beer, you can get some food and the chairs recline and it's becoming a whole, uh, you know, they're having to look at new ways of attracting customers. Uh, in, I mean, similar to what, if I go to my house, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable, I'm sitting in my pajamas and watching, sitting on my you know, easy chair and, you know, I can have a beard in my hand or whatever. So they're kind of recreating that in some of the theaters to bring people back out to, uh, to you know, th- those communal gatherings. Yeah, we, my wife and I just saw Amazing Grace, uh, the documentary on Aretha Franklin in a church in South Central Los Angeles in the 70s. 
and it was a, a quite a, uh, a documentary. Uh, I think it was perhaps poorly timed because I think it could get Academy consideration. If it didn't, I'm not sure. And uh, uh, it was um, in a landmark theater in West Los Angeles where there are couches and drinks and, you know, mm -hmm. now nobody's coming in and asking to, to take your order in the middle of the movie, but you know, right, you could, right. you could walk anything in you wanted and there were couches, mm -hmm. not, mm -hmm. not seats. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I like that experience. It's um, it's, any experience that where you can still see smaller movies and independent films and and significant documentaries and things like that, I'm all for that because I still love the big screen. Even my screen at my home theater is is at least twelve feet. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a projection, so it comes down out of the ceiling and all that funny stuff. But um, right. yeah, I, I mean anything smaller, I, I I just don't appreciate as much. I don't think. Mm -hmm. So where do you think the industry is headed? I mean, where is it going to be in 10 years? Well, uh, I'm not a prophet uh, as much as a reader of, of information and tea leaves, I guess. Uh, you know, you're going to have these continuous big superhero. I mean, how many Marvel movies are there now? Um, and they're all, they all make, you know, a billion dollars. And, uh, if one only makes 600 million, they think it's an abject failure. It's a failure. <laughs> uh, you'll never see a bad guy again. Who's Chinese. Um, you know, it, it's all, uh, so that it's an event. It's like, um, almost like an IMAX type event. Uh, I'm, uh, not sure if every movie, big movies now coming out in 3d again or not. Uh, but, uh, they, they certainly are more like, you know, going to a carnival and being strapped in. And I, I don't know where uh, virtual reality is going, where you put on a mask mm -hmm. and you're in a room, but a combination of that, like I did go on the rides in Orlando for the Harry Potter, uh, mm -hmm. where you are, uh, in a, a 3d situation plus articulated chair and all that and it it's it's phenomenal i mean just mm. utterly entertaining with a two-hour wait you know <laughs> so mm, uh, right. i don't know or what a what a two-minute ride or something yeah <laughs> but wow thrilling um it's it's just basically uh will simple stories still be told at a theater and um and then of course mm. the theaters have to do their part i just my last film released in theaters locally in wisconsin um where we shot it uh about about all almost two years ago and i got the statement from the theater on the earnings the earnings were fantastic we were held over well we were we were in the theater six weeks and uh, they were digitally now if so many people show up, they just knock a movie out of a theater and add a second theater. I mean, it's just really, it's really fantastic that way. But the printout said, okay, this is many senior discounts. This was uh, the taco Tuesday discount. This was the uh, matinee discount. And I, I go, did anybody pay full price to see this movie? <laughs> you know? So, but, uh, you know, they have to do their part. And of course, uh, they make in excess of 90% profit on popcorn and soda and what have you. Right. And, uh, right. but yeah, so it's all, it's all evolving. Uh, 
And I don't know what the next iteration is other than, you know, you walk into a Costco again and the first thing you see are these incredibly brilliant, beautiful, large screen TVs that are just crashing in price. And uh, every other shopping cart going out the door has got one on it. And right. so, uh, uh, and, and of course, in a larger city, you have to pay for parking as well. And, and of course, then if you have a, a babysitter, uh, you know, uh, it's just, it's, it's, I think it's going to be large event films in the theaters, uh, theater, uh, films that require really great noise, like, you know, fast and furious. Uh, and, uh, you want that 7.1 surround sound oh, yeah. that gives you the full immersive experience. And I want it loud. Right. And that, that's, a, that's another evolution, by the way, is that starting with the transformation over to digital, projection instead of uh movie projectors there's now a third party involved out of new york uh and you pay them and they put the equipment into the theaters including the sound and you pay them separately so basically the mm. theater you're renting the room and and the film and the equipment you're the, as as a filmmaker and a, you know just dis, just dis, distributor is paying them extra <laughs> it's very funny mm -hmm. so it's a mm -hmm. they found a way to divide it up even more mm -hmm. so for you know for those who are not in the movie business and don't understand the business behind it you know when so when a marvel movie says they made a billion dollars you know you really how much of that is actual profit i mean there's there's not that much profit in, in these movies well i'm constantly looking for money for two or three four projects i'm sure you are as well and yep. uh, I have, uh, I just did a film for uh, approximately $600,000. And uh, if you do the math, that's 20 investors for $25,000 each. And I went into uh, what you'd call uh, deferred compensation on some of the talent and uh, myself <laughs> and uh, to the tune of almost 100000 So that adds up to about 600000 And mm -hmm. Uh, knowing that we weren't going to get a national theatrical run unless we were some phenomenally unusual film. And uh, that's certainly what I would advise anyone to aim for. But virtually anyone who invests in a film, even at the $25,000 level, is um, knows somebody who's invested in a movie and has lost money. So there's really not and, – and if you, of course, you live in Los Angeles. I don't know what it's like in other parts of the country, but L.A., certainly was the movie capital. And uh, certainly there's a lot of stuff that's still done there. My trailer was cut there. My sound was mixed there. My sound was composed there. My music, uh, my uh, digital, um, how do you say it? My grading, color grading, which some people used to call it color timing, mm -hmm. was all done there. And my final printing, all that was still done in Hollywood. But it, there are other places to do it. I finished a film once in, mm -hmm. in Toronto. They, they were very capable up there as well. Finding money to make a movie in Los Angeles, unless it's a big studio film or a, a small independent where people work on it a couple of years. I always say people to people, like if I talk to film students, I say your film, your first budget and your first feature is going to be funded by someone you know. It's going to be your aunt, your mm -hmm. uncle, your grandpa, your kids your paper route, who knows, but it's, it's, it's the, the rich guy that, you know, down the block or a group of people, but everyone knows 
unfortunately, the the business, and this is the part I was going to refer to about Los Angeles, the LA Times, the Hollywood Reporter, everybody's constantly suing and being sued because they're not dividing up the profits. Everybody knows about the famous Hollywood accounting, that every minute a film is out, the studio is charging interest on the money that they used to make the movie. So when like, say, for instance, one of the Harry Potter films came out, I believe it's Warner Brothers, charged the production, charged the movie $53 million in interest. And I'm pretty pretty sure that's the amount. If it's not, it was fairly outrageous. So uh, the Mm -hmm. famous coming to America lawsuit, where the author, Art Buckwald, was promised a, a piece of the action off the back end. And the film had made, you know, well over a half a million, uh, half half a billion dollars, and they still said it was a it lost money. But the old rule of thumb used to be that the film has to make about three point three times its budget to be, to reach profitability, where um, non equity investors, which are you know directors, writers, producers, actors. And uh, maybe an author of the original material, non-equity investors would make start making their money. And there are plenty of big houses in the Hollywood Hills. You know, I mean, where I like to golf, Lionel Richie has a mansion on this golf course that is as big as you've ever seen. I mean, it's as big as the White House. <laughs> and um, so music people have somehow managed to make a lot of money. And obviously, right. Steven Spielberg is probably makes a million dollars a minute, you know, uh, and I might not be exaggerating there. The higher up you get, the more, the better your deals tend to be. But um, that's why they're also skyscrapers out in L.A. They're full of entertainment attorneys who either establish <laughs> establish how much you're going to get paid or they are after people for collecting. So on that level, it's tough to raise money, even in a place like Wisconsin, which is you know, people would call it politically a purple state. And um, the people who began this business were very big gamblers. They left their family businesses on the East Coast. Uh, They were in the fur business. They were in department stores. They were in the early Nickelodeons and uh, vaudeville uh, and and theater rentals and all that. But the, it's, it's pretty tough to find a straight-laced businessman who will put money into a movie. Mm-hmm. And so that, that that's part of the difficulty of and the trend of film. So you really are always trying to do a film for as little as possible with the highest quality because as my, my theater people told me as I was going to release my last film, it's got to look like a Hollywood film. It's got to sound like a Hollywood film. So you got to shoot in 4K at least, uh, and you've got to have a great sound finish, 7.1 or 5.1 is still acceptable, and, um, and, and so forth. So the future is also still on the story. How good of a story is it? It can be. So what's, what's the favorite movie you've worked on? Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I have a number of ways to answer that. The most incredible film was my first one because here I was 21, 22, and my writing partner and I were just out of film school, and a, a studio had read a script that we had written and wanted to do it. 
But instead, they they when they had a guy who was hired to do a six picture deal, and he wasn't a great writer. In fact, I don't think he had more than a a high. I don't know if he graduated from high school, so he wasn't much of a writer. He said, "Hire these two guys," and so I suddenly am writing a film for an Academy Award winning actor, a western, and it was called Gray Eagle, and we shot it up in Helena, Montana, and. And there were a lot of famous people in the movie and, and suddenly I'm on this set and, and it was, it would, that, so that, that's a favorite. It played in my hometown of mm-hmm. Appleton, Wisconsin. Actually, I'm from Wausau, but Appleton is where I moved with my family. It was held over at the Viking theater, you know, and um, <laughs> so that was really a great experience and right out of the gates, you know, Hey, what's so hard about this mm-hmm. type of an experience. Right. And then, um, <laughs> Working on the movies at 20th Century Fox, particularly Hot Shots, with the Jim Abrams, who was one of the guys behind the movie Airplane, that was just nonstop fun. Everything, every every decision that was made on that film was how silly can we get, how funny can it be? And Jim Abrams and Pat Proft, who was an executive producer behind a lot of these films, including The Naked Gun and all that, they were just going to the studio and driving on the lot and having the gate open and, you know, uh, eating at the commissary and, um, and everybody surrounding you is trying to make a serious film. And these guys are just goofing off and, Hmm. um, just, it was so much fun. And, um, so that, that was a very rich slice of my life. So going from those kind of films, what motivated you to get into some faith-based films? Well, I mean, part of it, was that I had a dip in my career and everybody is going to have that. And what happened with me was I had a business partner early on in that miniatures and special effects and, and shooting regular films and a very energetic, wonderful guy in many respects. But he always made the claim that he was the director. Okay. Michael, you can do anything you want, write, produce, be a cameraman, be a businessman, you run the books for the company, you invoice the studios, you interface with the producers, but I'm the director. And I said, well, fine, fine. And then one day, somebody approached me to write a movie, a, a teenage comedy type film, and they and, and they didn't have enough money to pay for, a, you know, I mean, I'm talking about hardly any money. And I said, well, they said, well, why don't we make you one of the producers as well? And I'm And I said to myself, you know, I picture myself in jail with these guys wearing striped suits and in handcuffs and shackles because I don't know if they were the best, you know, straight up and up businessmen. I said, well, what about if I direct? And they said, yeah, you can direct. (laughs) So that's how I became a director. It was always my goal, of course. But I mean, I have to state that up front. But when my other partner found out about that, he I think this story will appeal to your business audience as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. He came over to my house while I was in Arizona directing and he took out the computer, the files, and he, uh, he commenced a legal action to, to to cut me out of the company when I was a 50% owner. And so Mm -hmm. uh, we had, we had that uh, whole episode. And so I was suddenly, I went from making $30,000 a month. uh, It was a bad month if we made 25,000. And this was in the 80s. Uh, and uh, I had this house in the Hollywood Hills and suddenly my income went to zero. 
And um, uh, I just, in order to just reorient myself, I, I found a church, started going there. Uh, it was a big old brick church in the, uh, in the Hollywood Hills. And um, a lot of actual other entertainment people uh, went there and still go there. I could mention names and you'd blow you away. But, uh, uh, well, Scott Derrickson goes there. He directed Doctor Strange. Uh, I don't know if he still goes there. Wim Vendors, uh, who did Wings of Desire, was there. Bono, when he would come to town, of U2 would go. I mean, so it was just, it was that kind of church. So with a lot of, a ton of entertainment type people and, and it, it, but it, but it was also very rooted spiritually and it helped get me back to some sort of perspective on my life. Well, when I didn't have anything to do, uh, there was a street mission down in the, uh, on, on Hollywood Boulevard, just off of Hollywood on Cherokee in the middle of nightclub district. And I didn't realize this, that there were a ton of homeless teenage runaways at the time. And, and there might still be, I know that the homeless population of LA is burgeoned and it's up about 60,000 now and it's an epidemic. And literally there's an epidemic too of the plague. And I mean, it's just crazy. So I found these, this young couple who were uh, doing this rescue of these mission, uh, this, this night mission type thing. And they wanted me to make a, a commercial for them to run on TV as a public service announcement. So next thing you know, I'm, I'm directing uh, a commercial on Hollywood Boulevard. I got cameras from one company, free film from another company. Universal agreed to, you know, develop the film through Technicolor. Uh, and all, I got, I got, every, so I, I was able to draw on all my old resources. And uh, mm -hmm. some people were scouting a film about homelessness. Uh, and it was a, I booked the Billy Graham people. And, and they said, hey, would you consider directing this film? I said, well, sure. And so that uh, I did a film written by uh, Mark Jonathan Harris, uh, who was the at the time the head of the film department at USC. And of course, I'm a UCLA Bruin, so we're supposed to be bitter enemies. So I did this film called Come the Morning. And, and Mark not only wasn't a Christian, I mean, he had studied to be a rabbinical student. Uh, so... Uh, but he he looked at this film from the perspective of Billy Graham, what the Billy Graham people wanted to have in it. And uh, it was really a neat, a neat film. Now, Mark went on to uh, win Academy Awards for a long. Uh, let's see. Uh, Kinder Transport was one about all the kids that were taken out of Germany before the Nazis got a good foothold. And then he also did one on the founding of Israel and. And the uh, the amount of time it took to get the Jewish people out of the concentration camps once they were liberated to Israel, it took two or three years. It was a it was another exodus, and I think that was called the long journey home, something like that. So he's he's a, he's got a couple of gold statues in his uh, in his house in L.A. So um, I was able to work with him and a and a, a producer named John Shepard who just had that film come out about Emmanuel, about the church shootings, uh, that came out earlier this month. In, in, well, actually in right, June. Right. There was a lot of talent on that film, and, and, and the, the cameraman was great, and uh, the composer and the talent. The, in fact, Mariska Hargate was in the film, and she goes on to become, you know, uh, one of those law and order shows for, for a million years. So, uh, it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. And that, that was, um, 
that led to other films. Uh, and we started using A-list actors. And um, I got to meet uh, and do a documentary on Lou Zamperini, who was the in the book Unbroken. And the feature film mm -hmm. came out. I didn't have anything to do with the feature film, but that was Angelina Jolie directed that. But uh, so I got I got to know Lou quite well. Uh, and uh, he was at my wedding, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, so um, it, I had a very amazing journey in the faith based world. And later on, I I did these films for a guy named Chuck Colson, most famously Nixon's Hatchet Man and uh, Born Again. Yes, and, right. and then he went to prison for having the files of two private citizens in the in, in the White House. And that's against the law. And uh, mm -hmm. people thought he was Deep Throat and Watergate, but he wasn't. But uh, uh, he, I did many videos for him on reformed lives, people in prison who got out and never went back and whose lives were changed. So, mm -hmm. so it was a, a, quite a journey. And uh, it, it certainly mm -hmm. uh, is a part of my life. So what are some of the, the big life lessons you've learned over your years of making movies? Probably an early one that stuck with me is that the first summer out of college, I, I didn't really have anything going on. And I tried to get into the world of advertising. And so um, one of my friend's dads was really the, either the head guy or the second guy in charge of an ad agency on Wilshire Boulevard. And this was right out of the Mad Men series. I mean, you're talking about martini lunches and cocktails at four o'clock and uh, you shouldn't be driving home at 430. And uh, it, it just I mean, these were big, huge accounts. And this guy said to me early on, uh, you should learn how to do everything because one day you're going to have to fire somebody or they're not going to show up. And you're going to have to do that. So I had, I did over the next few years, learn how to do practically every position on a movie set, including budgeting for wardrobe changes, how many scenes in the movie called for different wardrobe, sitting in on uh, casting sessions, uh, everything. Now, the only one mystery is nobody knows how to do sound. I, I, uh, I couldn't do sound to save my life. But um, uh, so that was that was one of the first lessons is don't be afraid to try something new and don't be afraid to if it's a non-union film, don't be afraid to plug in a light or to move a light or, you know, if, if, if something needs to be done to help move the pace along, uh, you know. Uh, but don't don't take yourself away from your primary job either. Don't be distracted to where you're not doing the main reason you were hired. So that's that's one life lesson. Um, the other is that really a lot of it does depend on you. You can have the luxury of, uh, you know, there's several director producer relationships in Hollywood, wherever you had a Mel Gibson film. You had a competent, terrific producer behind him with Steve McAveedy. Uh, whenever Mel Gibson, I mean, whenever, um, oh my gosh, it's just Ron Howard has Brian Grazer and, and Todd Hollowell behind him. Uh, 
you know, they're just Steven Spielberg uh, tends to have very similar producers. My good friend from UCLA, who was in the same fraternity house, Tim Moore, has produced the last 12 Clint Eastwood films. And so you always get, you know, you build a team. Mike Nichols, who I greatly admire as a director, had the same crew and uh, producers for like 30 years, I think. Uh, and so that that's part of a winning formula and, and uh, treating people well, no matter what crew position they're in. Um, the, the teamsters, uh, the, the grips, uh, everything, uh, everybody's working at, you know, always listen to suggestions, but not to the point where you're still not in the position to make the final decision. You never want somebody taking right. over the set. Well, I, I kind of experienced it on one film where one crew member thought they, that they knew it all. And, um, so I came up with this expression when you hire a genius, that makes you an idiot. So <laughs> as long as when you hire a genius to help you, you want to make sure that you can still maintain <laughs> the fact that you're in charge and you're the, you're the creative vision and uh, whatever. But yeah, there are, it's a very collaborative art. So building those relationships mm -hmm. is really important, right? Yeah, absolutely. And if somebody calls me and asks me what experience I had with another person, a crew member or an actor or whatever, I just simply say it was fantastic. And then if they say, will you work with them again? I'll either say yes or no. And that's, that really mm -hmm. says it all. Always have mm -hmm. good people around you, people in your corner. My wife uh, is phenomenal for a number of reasons. People at getting an Academy award always thank their spouses and significant others bottom line there is that during thin times that helps with the cash flow that somebody else's has an income. Um, and, right. uh, and you can afford to take some, uh, you know, boutique projects that wouldn't pay you what you normally would get, mm -hmm. uh, for something a bit larger. Um, but my wife also reads material. She's a filter. She can point out where I'm, where I got lazy in my thinking or where something could be better, or are you sure about this yet? You know, that type of thing. So she's kind of the first mm -hmm. line of defense. And, um, so, yeah, I always, I always say that, that my wife uh, is the one who green lights my project. Oh, that's funny. I like that. <laughs> I mean, I, cause she's uh she's really a good, she has a good sense for people and can read people very well and can, and, you know, I don't, really work on a project really without her blessing, especially a project that's going to take me away. That's going to, you know, cause me to be gone for, you know, days or weeks at a time. And I really depend on her to, because she has to keep the home front going. And even though our kids are gone now, uh, makes it a little bit easier, but she's still like my last project, Heroin's Grip. You know, we kind of talked about it for several months. And then one day she heard our governor speaking about this issue about the opioid crisis. And she was like, and she leaned over to me and she said, you better make this film. Yeah. So when she does that, then I'm off and off, off to the races. Fantastic. Yeah. So, and I have a, a, a circle of advisors and, or uh, representatives, you might say. And, um, I was told very early on not to get an agent, um, 
it's because it, they said with a director, you're going to find the work yourself and then you have to pay somebody 10%. <laughs> so, uh, I, not that I wouldn't love to have an agent who was really fighting for me, but, uh, and I do have a couple that if, if, if it came down to this, if Universal Studios called later today and said, all right, Michael, you know, somebody, they insist that you do this. Who's your agent? I have several. I have several I could call on. Sure. And they would take 10%. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. Kind of wrapping up here. What, when the movie about your life is made, what will the log line be? Oh my gosh. Uh, I kind of like that. There's a, there's a, uh, uh, I believe it's referring to Mitch McConnell talking about Elizabeth Warren. I'm not sure, but he said she persisted. I don't know. I don't know if it was a Hillary or a comment about some woman politician and, and Mitch McConnell said she persisted. And that, that probably is, uh, mine. Uh, I persisted, uh, or I survived, <laughs> you know, uh, th there are so many things that can draw you away from this business during downtimes where you can start mm -hmm. managing a restaurant. I mean, I, I dangerously came dangerously close to becoming a maitre d at a restaurant in West Los mm -hmm. Angeles. And fortunately, when I walked in, they said, Oh, you have to cut your beard. And I went, <laughs> I went, nah, the beard is me. And now, of course, every maitre d on the planet has a beard. But back in the day, uh, that was not uh, not something that they that they liked. Maybe they had an entire restaurant full of people that they didn't want to have beards. But uh, so you can say your beard saved your career. Huh? Well, you know, it's a weird thing that when I was getting into the business, you had to look older. People, people mm -hmm. weren't going to hire you right away based on I'm, I'm on your youth. And now there's a premium on youth and, right. or it's, at least it seems to be. And, um, you know, every now and then you see a guy over, over 60 <laughs> winning an Academy Award. I told you so. And he's waving the statue in the air, <laughs> you know, uh, the beard uh, made me look a little more mature. I started growing it at a toga party at UCLA. <laughs> and, and, and then one day, one fourth of July, my, my, I was home in Wisconsin with my nieces. They said, Hey, uncle Michael, can we shave off your beard? And I said, yeah, we did it on video and it was fun. I mean, I I'm glad the blades were a little bit on the dull side. And, but when I, when I shave my beard, I gained 10 years back. I, I suddenly looked a lot younger and my skin was better. So yeah. Um, uh, anyway, I, I still feel like I'm at the midpoint of my career. I still have many films to go. A lot of ideas come to me and I have a few of my own. Thanks, Michael, for taking time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. It's uh, fun to hear the stories from the inside of Hollywood and how things are done there. So thanks for your work and thanks for taking time to talk to me here on the My Story Podcast. Next week on the My Story Podcast, we'll hear an interview with Jen Prizendance. She's an author, a recovery advocate, and she talks about her journey from being abused as a little girl to being homeless on the streets of LA and eating out of dumpsters while she was in the depth of her addiction to drugs and alcohol. And she'll talk about her journey to recovery. She has an amazing story. You won't want to miss it. That's next week on the My Story Podcast. 
The music on today's show is from my friend Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. Last, be sure to subscribe to the show so you won't miss an episode. And if you have an idea for an interview you'd like to hear, send me a message and I'll see what I can do. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you again next week on the My Story Podcast.